That's too much of a coincidence. <laughs> well, let's take our Bibles and open to Psalm 105. 105. Tomorrow is Independence Day. I was looking at the uh, Declaration of Independence this morning. It starts off when in the course of human events. Familiar with that document? It becomes necessary for a people to separate. And it talks about why we needed to separate from uh, England. And uh, that all of us are created uh, to be free people. And, uh, and so we had a declaration of independence. We became free. And it's interesting, however, there were people in America, even after the declaration of independence, uh, we have these these uh, these. Uh, fathers, for our forefathers who claimed freedom, and yet we had slavery in America. And that's why slavery is such a big thing, because not everybody in America really was free. You know? And uh, it's taken us, in fact, I would say that slavery was such a big issue uh, for this nation that we're still uh, suffering from it today. We're suffering the results. And I'm not sure we'll ever get over it. You know? And uh, we want to get over it, but we, it's not going to happen, I think, for a long, long time. That's why we do have this hope that uh, Bob was talking about, uh, not in, not in the, the cowboys, but in the, in the hope of a kingdom coming on earth. And I think you're going to see some of that in this psalm. So let's look at Psalm 105. And uh, last week, um, the psalmist called upon his audience to praise God as creator. And then that psalm, Psalm 104, was structured or laid out in chronological order of Genesis 1. It started off with God created the light, you know, God created the heavens, and that's how the psalm was laid out. Psalm 105 is just a little different, and, but it's just as interesting. The psalmist calls us to praise the Lord because God is our Redeemer. And what he does, he picks up with Abraham and goes from Abraham to the time when God's people enter the Promised Land. So Psalm 104 followed the chronology of creation. Psalm 105 follows the chronology of Abraham all the way through promised land. Most scholars believe that this psalm probably was not written uh, until the Babylonian captivity, uh, which was uh, you know, years after King David was alive and died. And the Babylonian captivity, what happened is that, you know, you know, heard the name Nebuchadnezzar, you know. Nebuchadnezzar comes down and uh, just basically invades Israel and he takes them captive. And the Jews go into slavery. And so what the psalmist does, uh, he tells the story of how God chose Abraham and formed a nation out of the Jewish, the Hebrew people and led them to the promised land. He freed them from Egyptian slavery. And why would that be important to this audience who is in Babylonian slavery? It would be important to them because it's going to give them hope. If God freed his people once before from slavery, he can free a people again from slavery. And so it gives them hope. Um, and so we're going to pick up there. So let's, let's just start. And uh, first of all, He's going to tell us to praise God because he called Abraham and established a covenant with Abraham. Now, before we go down these verses, the first thing I want you to notice 
is that there are 10 verbs. And I think nine out of the 10 verbs are imperative, which means the readers are commanded to uh, take the action that these verbs indicate. So let's just look at these, okay? Let's look at verb number one. Here's what he says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. That's a command. Notice the word Lord there is Yahweh, all capitals there, which is God's redemptive name. This is a, uh, it's not God, it's not just God Elohim who creates the world, but this is a God who delivers his people and he identifies himself as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh or Jehovah. So there's command number one. Command number two, right after that. Call upon his name, which would be Jehovah. Okay. Call upon his name. That's his covenant name. Okay? Verb number three. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Uh, tell others about his miraculous interventions on behalf of the people. Okay? Verb number four, found in verse two. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. So here he wants us to praise God. He commands us to praise God. Okay. Verb number five in verse two. Talk of all his wondrous works. In other words, uh, share uh, and spread news about his wondrous works. Okay, now look at the next verb. Verb six in verse three. Glory in his name. Bask in his glory. Um, uh, allow his wonderment to fill your mind and just say, oh, he's so great, he's so great. Just bask in his glory, in a sense. Okay, verb number seven, also in verse number three. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. So now you are to let your hearts rejoice. That is a command. Let your heart rejoice. You know, some of us are so miserable, we, can't, we will not let our heart rejoice. We think on the negative things. We should be thinking on God's miraculous deliverance. And we should be thinking about the great things he's done for us. Instead of complaining, we, it's a command. Let your heart rejoice. It's an attitude. It's a command. <coughs> Look at verse number four. We have the eighth verse. Verse number four. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek the Lord and his strength. Uh, his power. He's got power uh, that he wants to give you. He acts powerfully in your behalf. Look what else it says in verse 4. Seek his face evermore. Never give up seeking his face. The way you seek your face is you're turning to God, you're praising him, you're praying to him, you're talking to him, you're communicating to him. Uh, do it continuously. That's verse 4. Seek his face continuously or evermore. And then verb, verb number 10 is in verse 5. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and his judgments, the judgments of his mouth. So, we are commanded to call on the Lord, we're commanded to seek the Lord, we're commanded to sing to the Lord, we're commanded to share his wondrous works with people, we're commanded to enjoy the Lord, we're commanded to remember all the things that he has done. Okay. So that's how it starts, with these ten commands. This is what we're to do. Okay. Now, Notice who is addressed in verse 6. Who is he specifically addressing? Look who's to do this. O seed of Abraham, his servant. 
These are the children of Abraham who are to do this. Abraham's kin by faith. Abraham's kin by flesh. The Jewish people are to do this. He doesn't call the Hittites to do this or the Jebusites to do this. They don't know God by His covenant name, Jehovah or Yahweh. They follow their own gods. But God's people know Him. He's revealed Himself. He's done these things on their behalf and therefore He's telling them to praise the Lord. O seed of Abraham, his servant, look at the end of verse 6, you children of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name's changed to Israel, so now it would be this, you children of Israel, his chosen ones, his elect, God has chosen the Jewish people as his people, he didn't choose them because they were good people, he didn't choose them because they were talented people, by election, by his own choice, he chose those people to be his people. In fact, they were very weak people. He chose them to be his people. And he has acted on their behalf, and they are to praise him. Every person who is a believer is a child of Abraham by faith. These are instructions for us. These are instructions for people who are in Babylon. People in Babylon are enslaved, but guess what they're to do? Praise the Lord. Why? Because... He's delivered people in the past, and he'll do it again. His works have been miraculous. Okay? So that's section number one of this song. I'm going to call it stanza number one. Now stanza number two, we're called to praise him, because after he made the covenant with Abraham, he renewed the covenant with the forefathers, with the patriarchs. Okay? Notice how verse seven starts with an affirmation. He is Jehovah our God. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His judgments are in the earth. <clears throat> so God makes a covenant with the people. He acts on their behalf. He judges the other nations. And they even recognize that God is great because he has favored his own people. Verse 8. Very interesting about God. He remembers his covenant forever. So how long does God remember his covenant? So God makes a covenant. He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my guarantee. How long does he remember? Forever. The fact that he remembers it doesn't mean he just thinks about it. It means he acts on it. If I remember my promise, what do I do? I act upon it. So in the Old Testament, when you see the word remember, it also carries the idea of action. He remembers his covenant, and guess what he does? He remembers his contract with Israel, and guess what he does? He acts upon it. See, that's verse 8 there in Psalm 105. Look what else it says in verse 8. The word which he commanded, for how long? A thousand generations. That covenant is still in existence. God's covenant with Abraham is still in existence. It's an everlasting covenant. Abraham came to God by faith, and how do we come to God? By faith. Remember when Jesus spoke to the Jewish people? He said, you know, you need to believe, and they said, well, we have Abraham for our father. Well, Abraham was their physical father. They had his genes, but guess what? They were not children of faith. He says, no, you're, 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 you are your father of the devil, because you don't keep the covenant. But his covenant goes on for generations, thousand generations. 
It never ends. Not just for a thousand. It goes on for a thousand and one. A thousand and two. The word thousand just means unlimited. My father owns the cattle on how many hills? A thousand. Is that a thousand hills or a thousand and one? He owns them all. The word thousand there just means it all. Okay? So his covenant goes on forever. It's a non-ending covenant. Look at verse 9. The covenant that he made with Abraham. Now watch this. Not only did he make a covenant with Abraham, he reaffirms it. Look at verse 9. And his what? Oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob. See? For a statute to Israel as what kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant. So God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. He reaffirms that covenant with Isaac in Genesis 18. He reaffirms that covenant with Jacob in Genesis 28. So we have this covenant that is reaffirmed. God basically just renews it in a sense. What happened? Now look at the content of that covenant. Look at verse 11. Saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as an allotment for your inheritance. So, what was the covenant? I'm going to give you a land. It's the land of Canaan. That's God's guarantee. He will always remember it. He'll never break that covenant. That's why land is so important in the Old Testament. And particularly what we call the promised land. The land of Canaan. Okay. Now look at verse 12. When they were few in number. This is when he makes it. Look, when they were few in number. Indeed, very few. And strangers in it. So God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he says, this is going to be your land. He actually takes the Jewish people into the land of Canaan for a while, but they don't stay there. And even when they're in there, he says, don't worry, you're going to leave, but guess what? You own this land, it's going to be yours. And this covenant that God makes with Abraham is a unilateral covenant. Now, there's two kinds of covenants. There's a bilateral covenant. That's where we sign a contract, Jimmy and I, and there's his side of the contract and bargain and my side of the contract, and we have to keep both sides. But some contracts are unilateral. And this is a unilateral where God says, I'm going to sign the contract. I don't ask you to sign anything. Here's what I promise you. And here's what I'm promising you. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. That's a unilateral contract. And how long does it last? Forever. Never, never comes Extinct doesn't doesn't run out. Okay, so that's stanza number two. Now look at stanza number three. What he does now, he follows the chronology from Abraham and the Jewish people heading to Canaan to the point of the time of Joseph. Now look at verse 13. When they went from one nation to another. So they were in Canaan for a little while, but then they, they skipped one nation to another from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to harm them when they were on this journey, sojourning. He allowed no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones, 
and do my prophets no harm. So he's going to lead them to Canaan land. They are weak, and uh, they can't make it on their own. There are big armies against them, but guess what? God opens the way for them. He says he's stronger than all of those armies, and God protects them. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 16. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. God did that. And he destroyed all the provisions of bread. So they get into this property, and suddenly there's a famine, and people start starving to death. It's like the dust bowl. And who causes that famine? God causes the famine. Now I want you to think about that. There are going to be people that die. And God has caused the famine. You say, what kind of God would do that? It doesn't even make sense. No, when it's happening, it does not make sense. It only will make sense in hindsight. So look what it says in verse 17. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now notice how the psalmist puts it. God sent Joseph ahead of them. Now what really happened in history? His brothers became jealous of Joseph, and what did they do? They sold him to some caravan. <laughs> they got some money for it, went back and told their father Joseph had been eaten alive or something dead, and you know, here's these bloody clothes and all this kind of stuff. And his brothers conspired against Joseph, and they wanted to get rid of him because they were jealous of Joseph. But in reality, what does verse 17 say? God sent him ahead. God sent him ahead. Or verse 17. I guess it's verse 17. He sent a man before them. Who? Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So while they meant it for evil, his brothers, God meant it for good. And there'll be things that happen in your life and somebody wants to do something to you, and it is downright evil. And guess what? God will use that for good. And God had everything in control. And where did he send Joseph? You know where he sent Joseph. He sent Joseph into Egypt. They were starving, and Joseph is now in Egypt. Now look at verse 18. What happens to Joseph when he gets to Egypt? They heard his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Remember, Joseph ends up in prison, doesn't he? So, Joseph is sold into slavery. Joseph ends up in prison. Guess what? It's all God's doing. The slavers... You know, they get rid of Joseph and sell him to Egypt. And, you know, everybody's making money off of Joseph and he ends up in prison, but it's all God's doing. So now, that stands at three. Now you come to stands at number four, beginning in verse 19. And this is from Joseph to his family now moving to Egypt. And you know that story. Look at verse 19. He's in irons until the time that his word came to pass. That's God's word. The word of the Lord tested him. He was put in prison, and what was God doing? Testing him. Joseph, can you trust me? Can you believe me in this circumstance? I'm in prison, Lord. I'm enslaved. Yeah. Guess what? If this was written during the Babylonian captivity, guess what God's saying? Can you trust me? In your circumstances? You know? Could Joseph trust God? Well, he did trust God. Look at verse 20. The king sent and released him. Wait a second. Who actually released him? 
A different king released him. <laughs> but here it says the king released him. But we're knowing behind the scenes this is all God's doing. The king released him. The ruler of the people <laughs> let him go. That's all found in Genesis 41. So you're noticing Psalm 104, the psalmist follows the chronology of creation, Genesis 1. But here we follow the chronology in later chapters in Genesis. And verse 20 is Genesis chapter 41. Now look at verse 21. And he made him ruler of his house and ruler of all of his possessions. You know, that's what the Pharaoh did. To bind his princes and his power. Yes, how he can do whatever he wanted to do. He had that authority from the Pharaoh. And to teach elders wisdom. Now notice, a lot of details are being skipped. But there's a reason the details are being skipped. The psalmist just gives you the highlights and you can fill in the blanks. Because you know the story. He doesn't have to bore you with all the details because you already know the story. But he's emphasizing that God is in charge of this entire thing. Look down at verse 23. Then guess what happened? Israel came to Egypt. Why did they come to Egypt? They were starving or hunting for food. Remember that? And what did Joseph do? Revealed himself and said, hey, I'm Joseph. <laughs> he took him in. So look what 23 says. And Jacob, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name's changed to Israel. Israel dwelt in the land of Ham, which is another way of saying Egypt. He increased his people greatly. God did that. They became great in stature and status and in number. And he made them stronger than their enemies. And so we know what happened. They end up about two million Jews, and there comes a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph generations later. And he said, man, if these people decide to revolt, we're in trouble. Remember that? So that's the end of stanza number four. Now we come to stanza number five of the song, which covers the Jews in Egypt to Moses. Okay? So look at verse 25. He turned their heart, that's the Egyptian people, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And so this again was all God's doing. So here we have them turning against the Jewish people. Verse 26, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed signs among them and wonder, wonders in the land of Ham. And so he chooses Moses and Aaron, and they start performing all these different miracles. And you remember those stories of the miracles. Now look, here's one of them, verse 28. He, that's God, sent darkness and made it dark. Now we're going to start dealing with the plagues that happen when Moses is ready to lead the people out of Egypt. This darkness plague is plague number nine. Now why in the world would the psalmist start with plague number nine, darkness? Why did he start with plague number one? Why plague number nine? Now there's ten plagues. He starts with plague number nine, and guess what? He's going to end with plague number ten. Why darkness? Because the main god of the Egyptians was Ra, the god of and he wanted to show immediately to the Egyptian people 
that their God, the God of the Son, could not withstand Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of Israel. So right from the start, their, their God is defeated. He can't burst forth with his Son. Everything is just darkened. The Son becomes dark and it becomes like night. You see that? So, he's doing this because he's made a covenant with Israel. That he's going to give them a land. And right now, they're stuck in the wrong land. So look at the end of verse 28. And they did not rebel against his word. That's a hard statement because the they there is Egypt. And we know they did rebel against his word. So this particular part of the verse has caused translators agony. And the, the consensus is now that it should be read as a question. And it would read this. And did they not rebel against his word? And the answer is what? Yes. <laughs> that didn't stop them. They just rebelled, kept on rebelling against his word. And now we have other plagues. Look at verse 29. He turned the waters into blood. That's one of the plagues. He killed the fish. Another plague. Their land abounded with frogs. Remember that? Even in the bedroom, the chambers of the kings, there were the frogs. He spoke and there were swarms of flies and lice in their territory. Gnats. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. That means lightning shooting down from the sky. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. Basically just killed the trees. He spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. Now this was a the place that had all the food. <laughs> Guess what God's doing? He's stripping them of everything that they have. You look at verse 36. Now we have the tenth plague list. He also devoured all the firstborn of their land. The first of all their strength. And that's when he killed Pharaoh's firstborn son who was heir to the throne. And so what the psalmist is trying to say is that neither Egypt's God nor Egypt's ruler could withstand Jehovah, the covenant God, the one who's all-powerful, who in Psalm 104 is the creator as well. So, the ruler, the head politician, their God, religion, government and religion could not withstand God. The God of Israel. What does this say about governments and religions that stand up against the God in the Bible? Are their days numbered? Are they going to be judged? What does this say if the Jews who are reading this are in Babylonian captivity? What does this say about Babylon? How long is it going to stand? Forever? No, I don't think so. Will the Jews get back to their homeland? I think so. See, this is an encouragement. This should be an encouragement. This was an encouragement for them. It's a recurrent encouragement for us. Blessed is the nation whose God is what? The Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Whose God is Jehovah. Not whose God is some foreign God of another religion. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now look down at verse 37. We come to stanza number 6. Stanza number 6. This is the Exodus. And he brought them 
out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. So he brings them out, which means he brings them across through the Red Sea, he delivers them miraculously, and uh, none of them falter. None is left behind. None is so feeble that they can't get through the Red Sea. Man, they all make it through that Red Sea. Everybody escapes. Not one is left behind because of God's covenant. And they come out with silver and gold. Now, they didn't have anything. They were slaves. So where did they get the silver and gold? The Egyptians gave it to them. They were willing to give them anything to get them out of the land by this point. Can you imagine that? <laughs> what do you want? Let me take it off. So they, they, you know, they get their U-Hauls and start pulling up the gold and silver. And, you know, you wouldn't expect anything else from Jewish people. But, you know, pulling out the gold and silver in a sense. Pulling it out there. Where it starts, right here. And look at verse 38. Egypt was glad when they departed. <laughs> Egypt was now praising the Lord. <laughs> Why? For fear of them had fallen on them. Egypt absolutely feared the Jews. And they crossed the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness. Now look what God done. He spread a cloud for a covering as they were escaping through the wilderness. And a fire to give light by night. Okay, so now, they're out there and during the day there's a cloud and by night there's a pillar of fire. Now, this cloud and this pillar of fire served in three ways, I believe. First of all, we know from other scriptures that this represented God's presence. As long as they saw the cloud, as long as they saw the fire, they knew God's presence. It was a manifestation of God's glory. You can see God's glory in the day in the sky by the cloud, and they and the fire by night. Second of all, it was like a GPS system. Wherever the cloud goes, that's where you go. Wherever the pillar of fire goes, that's where you go. But it was also something else. Think about this. You're in a wilderness. You're in a desert. What's it like in the desert? Hey, Bob talked about 100 degrees in Texas for the next 15 days. That's nothing. Go to the desert. Go to the Sahara. See what it is. The burning sands of the Sahara. So you can just see that cloud sort of protecting them from the heat of the desert sun that would bounce down. Sort of cooled them during the day, so they didn't burn to death. And at night, you could just see that fire sort of providing heat from the cold desert ground. See how this can serve many different ways. And so he wants to make it a point that this fire and this cloud was there to lead them and guide them, provide for them. And look at verse 40. The people asked, and he brought them quail. Bob's a quail hunter. One of those kind of hunters. He just brings them food. God provides them with meat. He satisfied them with the bread of heaven. That's man. And he opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it ran in the dry places like a river. God provides all their needs during this trip toward the promised land. Why did he do all this? Look what it says in verse 42. For he what? He remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Abraham has been dead for years. We're talking about years. And guess what? God remembered that promise and he is acting on that promise. 
And so this is an encouragement that, you know, God has made a covenant with us. He's going to keep it. That covenant that God makes with Abraham is a covenant for deliverance. And he'll keep that covenant. Now we come to the last stanza, stanza seven. The arrival at the promised land. Look at verse 43. And he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. And he gave them the lands of the Gentiles. And they inherited the labor of the nations. When they walk into the land, guess what? Everything that the Canaanites had now becomes theirs. The shelter, the resources, the money, <laughs> the crops, everything that they have. Their cattle, they leave it all behind and the Jewish people pick it up. It's theirs. Just as Egypt gave them silver and gold to get them out of the country, when they come into the promised land, all their resources are found right there. God did this all. Even though there were human means, this is God's doing. So, the land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years before, which they settled in for a short time before they experienced the famine and went to Egypt, now becomes theirs. In fact, it was theirs the moment God promised it to Abraham and the covenant. They got the title deed that moment. Even though they didn't possess it that moment, they owned it that moment. And so they come in, and God fulfills his covenant, and they inherit the promised land. All of this is for a purpose. And look down at verse 45. Why did he do that? That, see, there's the purpose there. Anytime you see that word, that, you know it's a purpose. Why did all this happen? That, so that, in order that, they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. God delivered the Hebrew people from Egypt, and he formed them into a nation so that they would be obedient to him. And remember what happens when they come out meets them on Mount Sinai. He establishes a new covenant with them. This is called the Mosaic Covenant. Remember that? When Moses gets the Ten Commandments. And this Mosaic Covenant is different than the Abrahamic Covenant. This is where Christians get things all messed up. I have students, I have to straighten them out every year. They go, oh, now I understand. Now it makes sense. There was a covenant that God made with Abraham that was a unilateral covenant. God signed an agreement and said, I promise you this. But once he got them out of Egypt and he went on Mount Sinai, he entered into a different kind of covenant. Now God has established two covenants with him. This is a covenant made through Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And that is a bilateral covenant. This is where God says, I'll do this for you if you do this. <laughs> if you obey me, guess what? I'll do this. If you do this, I'll, I'll, you know, if you do this, I'll make sure you have crops every year. If you do this, I'll make sure this happens. And guess what they say? Oh, yeah, Lord, we'll do it. Let's go to a sign. Let's, let's sign on the dotted line right here. So God establishes this covenant with Moses. This is a conditional covenant. Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God's going to fulfill it no matter what. This is conditional. Two sides of the bargain on this one. The Mosaic Covenant served like the Constitution of the United States. In the Constitution, there are rules on how to set up a government, how a government should function, <laughs> laws of the land, and this is 
This is the Constitution for Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. It tells them how to function as a holy nation, how to choose a king, what the king's responsibilities are, what the citizens' responsibilities are. Uh, they're told not to take slaves. They're told to make sure that widows and orphans are taken care of and strangers in their midst are taken care of. They're to show mercy to people. They are to be gracious to people. You know, they are to be loving to people. Uh, they're to forgive debts every seven years. He said, I want you to forgive debts. And, oh, yeah, we'll do that. You do that, I'll take Oh, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that. So he gives them all these instructions. And the way you knew that these people were God's people was because they were under that constitution, the Mosaic Covenant. They were obeying that covenant. But guess what? If you don't obey that covenant, if you don't break, if you break the constitution, what happens to you? Yeah, there's curses. There's blessings that you keep, there's curses that you don't. So we have this constitution, and they said, well, this is what we'll do. And, and, uh, but they didn't do it. They moved away from the covenant, and guess what they ended up? Babylonian captivity. You know, the Syrians come in and scatter them. You know, Greece comes in and takes them over. Rome takes them over. You know, Persia takes them over because they just broke the covenant, this bilateral covenant. So now Jesus comes on the scene. And what's Jesus saying? He renews the covenant. He says, you've broken this covenant that Moses has set with you, that God set with you through Moses. And he comes in and he renews the covenant. He says, now Moses said unto you, but I say unto you. And Jesus explains the Old Testament covenant the way it's supposed to be understood and explains to them how it's supposed to be kept. And he renews this covenant with them and he says, guess what? He says, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, he renews this covenant. And he explains the details. He summarizes the entire covenant, the entire Mosaic covenant with the Jewish people. That they broke. Are they breaking the covenant when Rome is, when they're under the power of Rome, when Jesus is, is preaching and John the Baptist is preaching? Are the Jews being obedient to the Mosaic covenant? No, they're under Roman, they're slaves in Rome. See, they're still outside the covenant. So Jesus comes in and says, let me just summarize the whole thing for you. I can give it to you in two sentences. You know what God requires of you? That you love the Lord, Jehovah, the covenant God, with all your heart and soul and might. And then guess what you need to do? Widows, orphans, all your neighbors as yourself. If you do that, you kept the whole world. And he renews that covenant. And that's what the, what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. He gives you details. And, well, what does that look like? And so let me show you in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the New Testament calls this the law of Christ. The royal law of Christ. And we're all to live by the royal law of Christ. So there's a sense in which the church is very much like ancient Israel. We have, and Christians, Christ has delivered us just as Moses delivered the Israelites. Christ has delivered us through his death and resurrection. He's opened up the way for us to have eternal life through his death and resurrection. One day we're going to enter the promised land. He's going to come back and guess what? We're going to step foot in the kingdom of God. And that's going to be ours. Christ is just like a second Moses see, who <coughs> delivers us, opens the door. And he wants us to keep this royal law. He wants us to keep his constitution. 
for the church, which is the law of love. Not the Mosaic covenant as such, but the law of love. And when we do that, guess what he does? He blesses us. And when we don't, guess what? We get ourselves in trouble. <laughs> That's why we have so many people that are Christians that are in trouble. <laughs> because we don't follow the law of love, the law of Christ, which is love God with all your heart. And think about that. what that means. And then think how you take care of yourself. Love your neighbor that way. Then we take care of yourself. And that's why we get ourselves in trouble, you see, because of that. But those of us who do attempt to obey the law of Christ, we get blessings. Some of you, what God's blessed you every year of your life, and you don't even know why. You know, it's like, you know, anything. I mean, you've just been blessed, you know. And He blesses many times. But this blessing that we have, and Israel could have had blessings any time it wanted, all it had to do was obey God. There was a remnant. There were a few. There was like Joseph of Arimathea and Anna the prophetess, but most of them didn't. And But they could have been blessed. See? And those of us who follow the Lord are blessed. And we can experience aspects of the kingdom of God right now. But one day Christ is coming back, and we too, in a sense, will enter the promised land. Now in light of this, what should we do? Look what it says at the end of verse 45. Guess what? What should you do? Here's the purpose, that they might observe his statutes and keep his law. And guess what we should do now? Praise the Lord! See, that's what we should do. We should praise the Lord. So, Babylon, Jews in Babylonian captivity, guess what they need to do? Come back, obey the Lord, and guess what they should do? Praise the Lord! Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's not going to free these covenants. These Abrahamic covenants with you. And guess what? We should be doing. Has Christ delivered us? Has He given us the promise? Yes. What should we be doing? <coughs> Obeying Him and praising the Lord. Next time we'll pick up at Psalm 106, though, I want you to notice something. When you look at Psalm 106 and you go to the end of it, you'll see a notation there. Notice what it is. Book. Yeah, praise the Lord is how it ends. And then look at this. Book what? Book five. We now go to the last of the five books of the psalm. And book five consists of Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. So we're turning around the bend and we're heading home and we'll be finished this thing in three years. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that you have made provision for us. You have given us a covenant of everlasting life that is unbreakable. You've promised. We put our faith in you. We trust you. We don't have to worry, Lord, that when we die that we will ever enter the kingdom of God. We don't have to worry about a resurrection. You have guaranteed that. That is your promise. You will come through. And then, Lord, you've given us this law called the law of Christ, the law of love, which identifies us as real believers, which separates the real believers from the, those that just profess Christ. Those that are Christ are those that love like Christ. 
love the Father as you love the Father, and love our neighbors the way you love your neighbors. So, Lord, help us to, to take this message to heart, and every day, pray the words, praise the Lord, be on our lips. In Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.